So we're going to be in 2 Peter once again this, this morning or this afternoon, I guess. Uh, last time in 2 Peter chapter 2, the passage ended with this gripping statement for this gripping statement of truth for false teachers. For those who would twist God's word, who reject God's word, for those who would use God's word for their own personal gain and satisfaction. And listen to it once more. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. That was how verse 3 ended in 2 Peter chapter 2. And Peter is telling us of the seriousness of the attack of this, of this issue before the church. And it's not just an issue for his original audience. It's not just an issue for those people that Peter was specifically writing to here in 2 Peter. It's an issue for the church in every age. This is a serious matter always. And it's an ages-old problem going all the way back to that first false teacher in the garden, that serpent of old, the devil. And we know that Peter is not simply thinking of this as a singular and present issue in his day, in his time, because he alludes to the problem existing in Israel's past. Second Peter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people. He's thinking back to the Old Testament, and especially Israel in the Old Covenant. But he's also thinking of his original audience. And so in chapter 1, if you remember, he explained the claims of the false teachers. Uh, that these claims that were brought against him and the other apostles. And he makes it clear, he makes it clear there in chapter 1 that salvation is in Christ alone, as well as speaking towards the manner by which God <coughs> sanctifies us. And where the authority of a true apostle comes from, that is, the sure word of God. But then also, back in chapter 2, he alludes to this issue of false teachers as being a future problem, a problem that will continue on. Verse 1, again, that just as there were false prophets in Israel's day, and, and even before then, actually, of course, there will be false teachers among you. And false teachers, no matter what age they live in, their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They teach destructive heresies, destructive for them, but then also for those who believe them. And the matter of false teachers is no light thing. You see, false teachers, they're, they're not destroyed and judged alone. They bring damage upon true saints. They wreak havoc in true churches even. And some, even some who outwardly appear to be part of the church, they get entangled in the false teaching and they apostatize. That is, that they either walk away from the faith outrightly, or they presume that they are still believers, but by the way that they live their life and the things that they believe, they show themselves to actually be an apostate, outside of the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. They may profess to be a Christian, but what they believe about Christianity isn't true of the Christian faith. Peter, of course, doesn't want that. I do not want that. It's a tragedy. Yet, of course, God is working and he's accomplishing his purposes and building his kingdom even through these kinds of things. And so in order to protect the church, in order to strengthen the Lord's people, to help us not be deceived, in order to promote discernment, Peter gave six marks of false teachers in the first three verses of the second chapter. And in that, he also teaches us the fate of false teachers and those who go along with them. Remember, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. That is a serious charge. 
a terrifying charge. And we live in a day, much like Peter's, in which people downplay the wrath of God. They downplay the judgment of Yahweh. Remember their comment here in Second Peter was that Jesus wasn't coming back. You can just live however it is you want to live. Morality is, is flexible and, and, and it's a growing idea. That's the same sort of claims that are made by the, quote, progressive Christians and the deconstructionists today. And our text for this morning, Peter is going to explain even further the fate of these false teachers and, and the godly judgment that awaits him. As, and as well, some good news, the godly rescue that he provides for those that are the righteous, for those who are resting in the redemption brought by Christ Jesus. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to, in prayer to bless our time in his word this morning. We're going to read from verse 4 through 10a, the first half of 10 in chapter 2. The reading of God's word. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of the violent passion and despise authority. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us understanding this morning. So many things you have brought up in this passage, things we should be familiar with, things that maybe some of us are more familiar with than others, being that these are all accounts of what has happened in your history and what you have recorded in your special revelation. That is your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless our time giving us eyes that see and ears that hear. For Christ's sake, may Christ be exalted and glorified. In, Je in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, does it matter what you believe? Does it matter how you live? Those questions, which are, are still posed in our day, are essentially what Peter was combating in this letter. The false teachers were challenging the teaching of the apostles, and they were, they were presenting these other options, uh, these options that were outside of Scripture. But it, it's tricky. It's tricky, certainly because they would use biblical language. I imagine that it could have went something like this, these false teachers. They would say something like, you know, if people say they love Jesus, and then well, you know, at the end of the day, they're talking to people about Jesus, God, you know, he's going to save the elect anyway. We, why can't we just let people live the way that they want to live? Does it really matter? You know, is sensuality and indulging physical pleasure contrary to the biblical ethic? Maybe they wouldn't even say that. But is that even really a big deal? You know, God is gracious, of course. Do we really even need to talk about judgment? 
Are we really sure that judgment is even going to happen? I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Is Christ Jesus even going to come back at all? And if he is, well, you know, it's not going to be coming back in judgment. He's gracious. He's a God of love. The apostles teaching, they're just trying to control you guys. They, they are cleverly devised myths that they're teaching. Chapter 1, verse 16. It probably went something like that. Something along those lines. Are those the same kinds of seeds of doubt that exist in our day as well? Absolutely they are. Did God really say that? Does it matter how you believe and what you believe? Absolutely it does. Peter's answer for us is that 100% matters. It is of utmost importance because God knows how to rescue the godly. And then he also, he, just as he has in the past, he reserves judgment for the ungodly. And then he gives a number of examples in the Old Testament to establish this point. And by the way, that would mean that the Old Testament is extremely important to us as believers living today. There, there are those people today who neglect or even dismiss the Old Testament. And those folks are extremely wrong. That if we today think as Christians that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, like Pastor Andy Stanley has said, then we show that we really don't know what we're talking about at all. Amen. After all, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, he writes that all Scripture is inspired by, all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is theotnotos. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Certainly, at the time of writing that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would have been thinking of the Old Testament as well. In other words, if we neglect, if we unhitch from the Old Testament, then we won't be complete. We will be incomplete and not equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is important. It is necessary in light of understanding the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The New Testament references it on nearly every page, if not every page. And so Peter provides a detailed case for godly judgment and godly rescue based off of all true accounts in the Old Testament. He's saying, he's saying look, this has happened before. God will surely judge the wicked, and he will surely rescue the righteous. Don't be deceived. Don't believe these false teachers. For the Lord God has not changed. He knows how to rescue his people, and he will. Malachi 3.6 comes to mind. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. But he will keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And in order to make that point, Peter cites three examples from the Old Testament, from the history that's recorded in the Bible. And then he gives us two examples of God rescuing the righteous. Why the imbalance there? Why not, you know, nice and tidy, three and three or two and two? I don't know for sure. Uh, perhaps it's nothing. But it could be because of the seriousness and the danger of false teaching. And that's the problem that he's addressing here in 2 Peter. So he gives one extra example of that. Don't go along with these false teachers, he's saying, because their judgment is sure. So what I want to do this, I guess, afternoon, I guess, is, is to outline the text in light of these two points. Godly judgment and then godly rescue. 
So rather than going verse by verse like we normally would and exegeting them as we go along, we're going to jump around in the text a little bit within these two categories. So the first thing then, godly judgment. The first example are these angels that are mentioned in verse 4. Angels in verse 4. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, angels that have rebelled, that have sinned against God, they are disobedient angels. Now, whatever the sin was, and we'll come back to that in just a moment, whatever the sin was that these angels committed, the point that we're to see right away is that they were punished for it. They were absolutely punished for it. It wasn't like God turned his back on it and didn't care about it. It says that they were cast into hell. Now, the New Testament has more than one Greek word for hell. Hades is one of them, which generally means the realm of or the abode of the dead. It corresponds to Sheol in the Old Testament. And then there's the Greek word Gehenna, which is more... This is more likely the word that we think of when we tend to think of what hell is, this place of punishment. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, he's meaning God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell, in Gehenna. Uh, this here, though, <clears throat> is a different word used for hell. And it's one that's rarely used. And you can see in the ESV, if, you're, if your ESV is like mine or whatever translation you have, there's a footnote or at, on, on the word hell there. It says that in the Greek, it's the, wor- it's the word tartarus. Tartarus. This is not the final punishment. But what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a holding place until the judgment. It's similar to Hades in Greek mythology, actually. And Peter's actually drawing from that. This is the place where the ungodly, the unrighteous would go, awaiting their final punishment. And it's also used a few places in the Old Testament translation into the Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And Peter uses this same term here. It's a place meant to represent the, the worst part of the afterlife before Christ consummates his kingdom and everything gets thrown into the, to the lake of fire. It is, um, in Greek mythology, it is the lowest pit of Hades. And the point here is that God is serious about false teaching. So they are cast into hell. That is, into the place of chains and gloomy darkness. Not, not physical chains. Chains of gloomy darkness. It means these fallen angels have been bound. They have been set aside. They have been reserved for condemnation. Whatever exactly they did, we'll get there in a moment, it brought about God's wrath. Their days are numbered. They know it's coming, but they don't know when. Now, it could be that they're all bound, kind of like how, or in the same sense of how Satan is bound, as we see in Revelation 20, and that they are still active but limited for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Or it could be that they are in a literal place, being reserved for that final judgment. Uh, The same place, this Tartarus, the same place, but a lower, more painful, and more severe place of where people who don't know the Lord go when they die. It's probably actually the latter here. This actual place. And other angels, that is fallen angels, demons, they're aware of it too. Uh, Jesus, when he healed the demon-possessed man, and one of them had many, many, many demons in him. You remember he called himself Legion, and they were cast into a herd of pigs. 
you remember what Legion said to our Lord? This is Luke 8.31. 8.31 says, And they begged him. They, they begged him to not command them to depart into the abyss. That they know of this place. And they fear it. These fallen angels that wander about the earth, they still do today. They have it better than these ones that are in gloomy darkness. But it's not better for long. They are on their way to judgment too. Just not yet. Listen to the same account in Matthew 8. You remember this? And this is talking about Jesus here. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What do they mean by that? What time? They mean... Are you going to send us to the pit where our fellow fallen angels are before we're supposed to go? They know about the final lake of fire that, appoint, that follows that great judgment at the end. But for them, they understand there is an appointed time, but they could go at any time. And so they don't want to go there. So they say, you have not come to send us before the time, have you? It's interesting. As wicked and as wretched and as Filthy, really, as fallen angels or demons are, they are somewhat restrained in their con- conduct because they live in constant fear that they might, if they overstep their limits, be sent to this pit of blackness, be sent to this place where there are chains of gloomy darkness. And they don't want to go there. The reality is restraining them in some sense, to, to some extent. They're restrained. They're in the pit, even here on the earth, and they're awaiting their end. So, what did these angels do to deserve condemnation? That's not easy, really. At first glance, it seems like Peter may be talking about some sort of a, a pre-creation fall of the angels. Uh, many commentators have read it that way, that it's speaking of some kind of event that maybe predates the creation of Adam or Eve, some kind of angelic rebellion, a rebellion possibly even that took place uh, after day six or day seven of creation, but before Adam's fall in the garden. Uh, There's hints of this, possible hints of this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. There's allusions there in both of those passages of an angelic rebellion concerning comments about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. That these two kings and their evil and their rebellion, they were sort of like these, these types of the angels who rebelled. But the Bible doesn't say much about it. It's possible. But is that what Peter is talking about here? There, obviously, there was certainly an angelic rebellion at some point. That much is clear. But I think that this passage is almost certainly talking about a different incident. So let's, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 in our Bibles. We'll kind of go back and forth from Genesis and the New Testament a couple times today. This is a highly debated passage. It's one that I have gone back and forth on myself, you know, arguing with myself. What do I think is the right way to understand this over time? So have you ever heard of the Nephilim? You know, in, in Hebrew... It's a root word that means one who is from a root word that means one who falls on one another. 
I always call, uh, call Big Sam a Nephilim, Superior Sam. I always joke around and call him a Nephilim. He's a big guy, right? And so some people believe the Nephilim were giants. And so Genesis chapter 6, let's read from there, beginning at verse 1. When man began to multiply, multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim. If you notice, there's a footnote in the ESV there that says, or giants. But Nephilim is just a Hebrew word. And just whenever translators just transliterate a word into English, it's a pretty good sign. It's a telltale sign that they really don't know what's going on there. That, that's the Hebrew word. There's a mystery about it. We don't know quite what it's about, so we're just going to give you the Hebrew word, the Nephilim. Back to Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So what's going on here? What is this passage talking about? This is that highly debated passage. And some commentators have struggled for years and years here. I know I have. What does it mean? The sons of God, verse 2 says, that they saw the daughters of men, that they were attractive. And they took them as wives, that they went into them. The Bible is discreet. They bore children with them. But who are these sons of God? It's basically three possibilities. They could either be humans descended from the line of Seth. Seth was a son born to Adam and Eve after Cain had killed Abel. And he is the son of God. We see that early on, chapter 5. But somehow that seems unlikely. They could be royal princes, uh, men of regality, men of royalty. There's some evidence for this. Pastor Riddlebarger is, is very helpful in, in understanding that view, that royalty could be called the sons of God. And of course, you know, it's common for kings and emperors to wrongly deify themselves, right? And so maybe perhaps that's what it's saying. Or thirdly, they're angels. And it would seem here that Peter, in 2 Peter 2, in referencing this event and understanding this passage, he seems actually to be talking about angels who came to earth in human form. And if that's what Peter thinks, then I'll go along with Peter on his interpretation of Genesis. This phrase, the sons of God, refers to angels in a few places, in, in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, probably most famously. And so it's not unheard of that we would call angels the sons of God. That would be a reference to angelic beings. They came to earth in a human form. Think about it. There's other instances in the Old Testament as well. There are those three visitors who came to Abram and to Sarai, and they make a meal for them. Hebrews 13 seems to imply that they were angels. Remember Hebrews 13, some of you, you know you ought to be hospitable because some of you may have entertained angels unawares. Amen. Now, if you entertain angels without knowing it, it must mean that they don't always have wings or bright clothing. They're not always 
that you know, terrifying image of the eyes all over their faces and all the wings that we might be accustomed to. That sometimes they can appear as normal people. They don't always cause you to tremble in fear. There's another Old Testament account, but we'll save that for later. So they can come. Angels can come in a human form, it seems, with physical bodies, able to, to touch, able to eat. It's rare, surely, I would think, these angels then, the reality is that they had sex with women. That is what we are seeing here in Genesis 6. Now, the problem with that is, well, didn't Jesus say that in heaven you'll be like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage? So, you know, can angels do that? And I think we have to take Jesus to mean there that angels... Angels in their angelic form are not given in marriage. They don't have sexual relations between themselves with other angels. But this is sort of an exception in this account here in Genesis 6. It's because these angels have come. They have taken on a human form. I don't know what the, how that works exactly. Were they? I don't think that means that they were possessing a human body or something like that. I, I don't know how it works. But they have sex across species lines, angels and humans. It's wild. I know what I sound like up here. So, so, so why do I think this is the right view to have? Going back to Second Peter, that this is what Peter is talking about when he says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Why do I think he's talk, taking this view about Genesis 6 rather than a pre- early creation, or some sort of angelic rebellion right before the fall? Let me give you a few reasons. First, there is strong Jewish tradition in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that understands Genesis 6 in this way. There is these, in, these sort of um, intertestimonial books, books that are not scripture. Okay? These books are not scripture. Uh, books like the Testament of Naphtali, the Jubilees, the Damascus documents, and then even writings of Jewish historians that we have. And most prominently, there's a book called First Enoch. Book called First Enoch, or, or just simply Enoch. Enoch, you may remember, is mentioned in the genealogy of Adam. He was the father of Methuselah, the, the man that is listed in Scripture with the oldest age. And this was the man, Enoch, who walked with the Lord and he was not. He was translated into heaven in some mysterious way. And there was a book written somewhere between the 3rd century and the 1st century B.C. before Christ called First Enoch. Now that means it certainly wasn't written by the Enoch who's written about in Genesis chapter 5. The one who lived thousands of years ago. But it's called First Enoch. And here's what it says in chapter 6 of this book. It's not scripture. First Enoch is not scripture, but listen to what it says. It's a popular book. Chapter 6 says, It came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days, they were born to them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them. They said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and they begat us children. Later in chapter 7, it says, Angels came together with them and took unto themselves wives, and each chose one for himself. And they began to go into them, and they were defiling themselves with them. They taught them charms and enchantments, and they became pregnant. And they bore these great giants called the Nephilim. That is what Enoch chapter 6 and 7 says. So this book, First Enoch, and there were others like it. But they understood Genesis 6 to be talking about angels who came in human form, 
had sex with women and brought forth these large people called the Nephilim. <coughs> Again, that's not in the Bible. We should be skeptical. I am, even. But now, let's turn to Jude, that which is in the Bible. Jude is back near Second Peter, towards the end of your New Testament. Why should we think Peter is thinking of Genesis 6 this way? I mean, I mentioned this before, uh, both Jude and 2 Peter, are, chapter 2, are very, very similar. Uh, Jude's short letter and the, second Peter, and the second chapter of 2 Peter are all nearly identical in some ways. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were both commissioned to pen similar things. And certain, again, certain parts are nearly identical. So Jude, verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, there's that same phrase we just read, <coughs> until the judgment of the great day. So this is the same thing Peter was talking about. Jude is mentioning the same thing. And we know, we know that Jude was familiar with verse Enoch. That part is not debatable. Because if you look down at verse 14 in Jude, you'll see that Jude was familiar with it. And again, Jude and 2 Peter have many similarities. Verse 14 in Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. And it goes on to say what it is that they are going to do. And that's a quote from 1 Enoch, Enoch 1.9. That phrase... From that prophecy from Enoch isn't contained back in the early parts of Genesis. He's quoting from this intertestimonial book, First Enoch. So we know that Jude was familiar with it. And Jude and Second Peter, they share many commonalities. And so if Jude is talking about First Enoch here, then it stands to reason that probably that Peter's referring to the same incident here in chapter 2. But there's another clue. See in verse 7 in Jude 7, which you just read a moment ago, or we read verse 6, notice verse 7. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, likewise Sodom and Gomorrah pursued this sexual sin. Second Peter, Peter has things to say about Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Likewise. Meaning that there's a commonality between these two accounts. A commonality between what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and then what happened with these angels. So that really removes us from the possibility of an angelic rebellion early in creation, as being explained here, though one did happen. But it puts us into the category of angels committing sexual sin, pursuing unnatural desire. And also, it makes sense to see that Peter is moving here. He's moving chronologically through a series of events in Genesis. So he starts with the angels sinning in Genesis 6, and then he moves to the flood in Genesis 6 to 7 and following, and then he's going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is in Genesis 18 and 19. And so it's a bit weird that Peter and Jude seem to be quoting from Jewish tradition here. I mean, what do we think of that? in light of our beloved doctrine of sola scriptura. Well, what it does, or what it should do for us, is, is serve to remind us of the errors of biblicism. That notion that says we can't really be helped by something that is outside of Holy Scripture. Because here, 
And we'll see later that several other elements here in Peter's understanding, they're relying on some different parts of Jewish tradition. Lot was righteous. You get hints of that in Genesis, but that's owing more to Jewish tradition. Or that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's also not explicit in Genesis, but later Jewish traditions. So we need to first realize that there is nothing wrong with the Bible writers using other sources. We don't think that the Bible was formed like the Book of Mormon was. That Joseph Smith found this special revelation from God, and then he dictated it to scribes. We do know that God superintended the process of giving his word so that everything is God in God's word is fully true, even these things about First Enoch. And we saw that in chapter 1 of Second Peter. But he used the personalities. He used their intellect. Uh, think other places as well. We know that in Luke, when the, the, he's writing for Theophilus, he says that he investigated things in Luke chapter 1. And so he's drawing from eyewitnesses. He's drawing from sources. He's doing the work of a historian there, yet still superintended by God to be Holy Scripture. We know there's nothing wrong with relying on Jewish tradition per se. The tradition, no doubt, got some things right at least. And there's nothing wrong with using a common word for the underworld like Peter does with Tartarus. It doesn't mean that Peter accepts Greek mythology. In fact, we know from chapter 1 that he does not. Chapter 1, verse 16, he distinguishes the truth from these Greek myths. But what about First Enoch? Jude quotes First Enoch. Should First Enoch be in our Bibles then? That's, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that should be the case. Uh, the Apostle Paul, if you may remember, he quotes from different Greek philosophers and playwrights in Titus. He quotes from the, from the playwright Epimendus, who said that Cretans are all liars. In Acts 17, he quotes from a Greek philosopher who said that all, all people were God's offspring. That doesn't mean that these, this playwright and this philosopher, that what they said when they said it was inspired. But the apostle used them as illustrations. And the apostles would find truth in these, and so they quoted them. And Jude, you notice, again, he quotes from First Enoch, saying, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And that is Holy Scripture. That is inspired in Jude's letter. And it sheds some light on what is mysterious or unknown in the Old Testament. And don't miss the point here. This is Peter's first example of godly judgment. God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, this supernatural sin that is all very uncomfortable to us, but he did not spare them, then false teachers need to be aware that they too will not escape judgment. That they need to repent Because the Lord God is not playing here. That was an interesting example, so we spent a lot of time on it. We'll go much faster through these other ones. So here's the second example of God punishing the ungodly. The flood. There's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God did not spare the angels, why will he spare these false teachers? And now with the flood, if God would punish the entire world, what makes you think he would not punish you and me? If he did not spare the ancient world. And by the way, it's the whole world that is flooded. That's the, there was the sin of the angels that we just spoke about, the sons of God, in the last example. That was going on at this time. And then in Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But it's not just some local thing, some localized flood like people like to speculate about today. Second Peter helps us here. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, world, not a local area, but the world, the end of verse 5, God brought a flood upon the world, the cosmos, from, from the word cosmos. The context here is the whole world, the world of the ungodly. Certainly the ungodly were not just localized at one spot in between a couple of mountains, right? The wickedness of man, we read, was great in all of the earth. And we tend to have these cute little pictures of the flood uh, drilled into our minds. You know, there's nothing worse than pictures of Jesus in children's books. The pictures of a little happy flood with the ark comes pretty high on the bad scale. Little animals smiling, lions grinning, elephants with their trunks up in the air skipping on the way to the ark. It's not like that. There has never been a judgment upon the earth like the flood. And there will never be one again until the very end. Peter sees it as a warning. God did this once and he will do it again, but with fire. He talks about it in chapter 3. And false teachers, they will not escape judgment. The warning is don't go along with them. Only eight were spared in the flood. We'll get to that in a moment. But the whole world in Noah's day was exceedingly wicked. And I don't think we should somehow think that it's much better in Peter's day or now in our day. Certainly there have been advancements. Uh, The gospel has spread to many nations in ways that it hadn't uh, there in Noah's day and even in Peter's day. And there are Christians doing great works. But the heart of fallen man is no different today than it was back then. And notice the end of verse 9. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Back in 2 Peter. And especially those who indulge in the passions of, in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Is that not what the angels did in the first example? They rebelled against that natural authority. Same issue in Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll see that in just a moment. But it's also the issue with these false teachers that Peter is dealing with. They're known for the sensuality, 2 Peter 2.2. They lead people astray with it, and the way of truth is blasphemed. And that's not much different than it is today, is it? You've seen this, I know. We've talked about it. This, quote, progressive Christianity before, which again, it's not Christianity at all. It's a whole other religion. But it has a similar starting place as these false teachers in Peter's day. Sensuality, sexual sin, and from there the way of truth is blasphemed. So in order to justify their doctrine, what they do is they abandon inerrancy. There's a video that you could look online. I think Brendan shared it on Slack with a debate with James White and... um, Jeff Durbin, and this other guy who's a progressive Christian, Christian, you can see they, they abandon inerrancy. They abandon a biblical ethic on sexuality. There's all kinds of sexual sin out there, but it's homosexuality and to a lesser degree trans, transgenderism, which is really, if you think about it, an extreme form of homosexuality. If It's even possible to have that, but those are the issues of our day, especially with this progressive Christian movement, which these people in progressive Christianity are false teachers. You don't have people arguing at a large scale in Christendom for adultery, for just rank fornication or polygamy. Not yet, at least. But it's homosexuality. 
That's what the culture, that's what the world is doing. And progressive Christianity is in step with it. False teachers are advocating for it. Do not go along with it. Because the Lord keeps the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That is what Peter is saying. And that brings us to the third example of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the, this really, I mean, it is the classic example of God's judgment. It is referenced in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Zephaniah. Jesus mentions it multiple times himself. Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Luke 17. Yes, Jesus believed in judgment. These cities and the surrounding area are just leveled. This is a foretaste of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Verse 6, back in 2 Peter. Verse 6 in 2 Peter. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Again, note the seriousness of God's judgment here, friends. Condemned to extinction. That is what is awaiting false teachers. They won't get away with this sin, with this offense. And Sodom and Gomorrah is an example. They, that's what the word says. They are an example of what will happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with the ungodly. You remember this account, don't you, back in Genesis 19? You remember probably Genesis 18 as well. The patriarch Abraham, he was very concerned about these cities. And so he intercedes for them. Let's go back to Genesis 18 so you can see it there yourself. Abraham, he certainly knows that his relative Lot is there. And so he wants to intercede for these cities being visited by these three angels who tell him what is going to happen to them. And so he's concerned, and he prayed that God would spare them. You remember his prayer, perhaps. He kept giving God numbers and saying, and saying God, suppose there are just this many righteous there, will you then spare the city? It's, it's well known. Verse 24 in chapter 18. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Abraham is pleading for these people. He's, he's loving them, praying that God would be merciful to them despite their wickedness, which I'm sure he knew. And he kept doing this, and the number kept dropping. 30, 20, 10, verse 32 in Genesis 18. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak this again but once. Suppose ten are found here. He answered, the Lord did. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Abraham had pleaded with God from fifty down to ten righteous people that God would withhold his wrath and be merciful. And we know the outcome, though, don't we? There were not ten. There were not ten in the whole region. And this is not long after the flood. From those eight people who were spared, we find ourselves again at one of the clearest pictures of God's judgment. And it's popular today, especially within the progressive Christian movement, this crowd. It's popular today to downplay the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah so that they can promote 
their sensuality, the very thing that Second Peter is warning us of. And from what we see then in that is the way of truth is blasphemed. And so they'll go to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 to explain what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16 says this, verse 49 and 50. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did, not, and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. And that's true, of course. That's all true of Sodom in that area. The region was filled with pride, with selfishness. They had a neglect of the poor and the needy. The people were haughty. They were prideful. But that's not it. There was more than that. You remember what happened, what Jude alluded to, how it was similar to the sins of the angels in Genesis 6. But here it's actually reversed. Two angels enter into Sodom basically with the intent to rescue Lot. Lot meets them in the town square, and then he compels them to come into his house. He's being hospitable. They looked like men. They had the form of men. They actually ate a meal with Lot. And then we read in Genesis 19.4, But before they lay down, meaning these angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, Every single one of them, to the last man, surrounded the house. All the men of Sodom, we read, young, old, they surround Lot's house. Over And over the next eight verses, we learn what was going to happen. They intended to have their way with these two angels, to, to rape them. These two angels who look like two men. It's homosexuality. Lot tries to protect them. He does it in a way that's hard for us to understand, doesn't he? Even offering his daughters to them. I have four little girls. I can't see that happening if I was in Lot's shoes. But that's what happened. The angels prevent that, though. And though they strike this homosexual mob with blindness, even then the crowd does not stop. They became more enraged, clawing at the door. There is a, quite literally... A gay pride parade at Lot's door. And that's not meant to be funny. It's not just a small thing that we have those in our nation, friends. That we have whole months devoted to this. It is judgment upon our nation. And many Christians, professing Christians, have been deceived by it. And that is what's going on right before destruction came to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Judah affirms that this was the issue there. Not just haughtiness or a failure to care for the poor. It says in Jude 7 about them, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They went after strange flesh, the flesh of angels, if that's a thing. Just as the fallen angels had gone after strange flesh, the flesh of woman. And here these angels appeared to be as men. And so God says, I'm going to destroy them. He sent a fire that incinerated all of them. They turn, it turns the whole place into an ash pile. And Sodom and Gomorrah became that prime example of the sin of man against the truth of God and the consequence of that kind of sin. And so Peter is building his case here. Do you see it? Do you get it? 
All throughout history, the angels, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, God has punished the unrighteous. Surely he has not forgotten. Surely he has not turned a blind eye to it. To all the wickedness in our own day. In verse 3, he says their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. But God knows also how to rescue the godly. And so those are the three negatives. Here are the two positive examples. There's good news for us here at church. Gospel for us in light of this wickedness. Number one, Noah and his family. Now it says Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness. We don't get that in Genesis 6. Uh, We could assume it, that it happened, certainly. But it's also a common belief in Jewish tradition. Josephus, in chapter 3 of his works, for example, says that Noah, indignant at their conduct, viewing their counsels with displeasure, urged the people to come to a better frame of mind and amend their ways. In other words, he urged the people to repent. That was the oral tradition had passed down, and Josephus records it. If you think about it, I mean, how could he not be some kind of a preacher of righteousness, right? He's building this ark for quite a long time, waiting for it to rain. And surely people came up to him and they said, you know, like, hey, what is this all about? They would, they would be curious. What's going on? It's a big boat. What are you doing? Likewise, the animals knew what was going on. I mean, they came two by two to the ark. Noah would have had on many occasions to tell people what he was doing, why God was punishing, opportunity to implore people to repent and turn. He was a herald of righteousness. And so should we be. And we must realize that increasingly so, that when we are, we will be laughed at for doing so. If we warn of judgment, if we speak of a coming condemnation, some will think us crazy or even worse. You'll be you'll be hated. That's what happened to your Lord, right? Remember what his message was? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did it get him? Popularity. Lots of likes on Facebook. No, it got him crucifixion. And we are not above our master, friends. But in fact, that's a really good thing. That Christ Jesus is our master. He's our Lord and our Savior. And because those things are true, because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, we are declared righteous in his sight. Noah found favor in the sight of God, we read in Genesis 6. That wasn't because of his own personal righteousness, was it? What was it like? Five minutes after he got off of the ark and then he's plastered on ceremonial wine? It wasn't his own righteousness, but he was on the ark, wasn't he? That's how he was spared. And Christ Jesus is the ark for us. He is the ark for all who believe. He knows how to rescue the righteous. And that's because Christ Jesus himself is our righteousness. That's our hope. That's our surety that he will by no means forsake us. Because, and in fact, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Though we live immersed, surrounded by all of this wickedness, it's a trial for us. The Lord knows how to rescue us from it. He will hold us fast, like we sang just a few moments ago. And now that brings us to the second example, Lot. Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom, pleading all the way down to ten righteous people. But was there a godly family in Sodom? 
There was at least one righteous man. Now, it's curious, it's interesting, I think, that verse 7 and 8 make so much out of Lot's righteousness. Calling him a righteous man. You're familiar with the story in Genesis. We just talked about it a little bit. We don't quite have that picture of Lot. He makes a bad decision. Remember when he's choosing up parcels of land, he and Abraham together, but God is blessing him so much that they must split ways so that the resources of the land will be sustained. And so Lot, he ends up setting his camp by Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad decision. Go set up you know, your camp in San Francisco, for example. You know, they need the gospel there, so of course. But bad decision on Lot's part. He chose what looked good to his eyes. Then the issue with the angels. And if you remember that whole situation, after it all goes down, he seems kind of reluctant to leave Sodom. He lingers, we read. And essentially, the angels literally have to rescue him and take him outside of the city. And after he leaves, the very next story... He's getting drunk, and he has sex with his two daughters. I mean, it's, it's a mess. We should be shocked. This doesn't seem like a virtuous God. He's not perfect. No person that is righteous in God's sight is perfect in and of themselves most assuredly. But there are hints. There are hints of Lot's righteousness in Genesis that he was, he was compromised in some ways, his overall disposition was still toward God. We see hints at this, that he was hospitable when the angels came, right? He wasn't in that crowd of every other man, young and old, in Sodom that was trying to take advantage of these angels. His desire was to protect them. We see this most clearly if you think of the story and remember how Abraham was interceding for Sodom. When Abraham was pleading with God, he trusted that God would be just. Genesis 18:25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do right, do what is just. So why did God make the point to save Lot out of this city? It must be because Lot was considered righteous. The evidence, there's some evidence of him being morally righteous to a decree, but more importantly, He had the righteousness that comes by faith. He was one of God's people. He was righteous. Three times in 7 and 8 is Lot called righteous. Righteous Lot, that righteous man, his righteous soul. If God says someone is righteous once, we should take note. But if he says it three times, we are really meant to understand this. Again, there is Jewish tradition that would tell us that Peter is emphasizing Lot's righteousness standing, that it wouldn't have shocked anyone. I know it comes as kind of a shock to us. But Lot was rescued, was he not? God knows how to rescue the righteous. That is the apostle's point. Not someone who is righteous based purely upon their own actions and their behavior. Not on their works, on their life. No. He rescues the righteous those who are righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And certainly, when a person is born again and reconciled to God, when they receive the offer of the gospel with gladness and joy, it is evidence in their life. Not that they're perfect, but there is evidence. There is evidence. The, Lord's, the Lord does sanctify. He begins sanctification of those that he saves. 
And so Peter marks his righteousness in a, in a way that we can see. Because we can't look at someone and see with our eyes that, oh, this person is a saved, is saved just because they, they look different now or something. So he, he appeals to his, some of his actions that tell us. He tells us why we should think Lot was righteous. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You know how you know that Lot was righteous? How could we tell that Lot possessed salvation? Because he hated what? He hated sin. Not that he never sinned himself. I'm sure there was a struggle with sin, but he hated sin. Sure, he might have been a weak father, and yes, he might have been on the worldly side and he enamored uh, with possessions and somewhat selfish. And yes, he had some hesitance of moving out even after the destruction. It was a big move. And when it was all done, said and done, he drank too much in the trauma of all that moment. But what we read in Second Peter is that he wouldn't have any part of the filth of the culture that he lived in. It, it tormented him. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of those unprincipled men around him. What a statement. I'll tell you, that should be able to be said of every Christian. He was oppressed by that. In his heart, he loved righteousness. In his heart, he hated sin. He rejected the sins of the culture. He wrestled against his flesh. Literally, the Greek says that it wore down his soul. It means to, to wear out someone, katapaneo, to exhaust them by suffering. He was worn out with them. He was literally troubled and deeply exhausted with what he had to endure living in that culture. Sensual, that word means outrageous behavior. Unprincipled means unrestrained, without standards. He was a man worn out. Exhausted by the unprincipled, immoral, outrageous behavior of these people around him with no standards, with no fear of God, with no regard for God's word. And verse 8 makes the point even stronger. That he had a righteous heart. For by what he saw and he heard that was going on in his own culture, quote, that righteous man, while living among them, felt in his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. While living among them day after day, all the time, his soul, which was righteous, was tormented within him. Tortured, like Noah and his family, Lot stood against sin in his day. Wasn't perfect, neither of them were. But Lot was not swallowed up in the sewer of immorality and all these lawless deeds. The whole society had followed lies, rejected God's truth, followed the lying false teachers of Satan but not Lot, and God was gracious to him. He wasn't perfect. The rescue wasn't based purely on Lot's actions, but Lot is correctly called righteous. And in him, through what God reveals to us through Peter, we see the attitude of the righteous, don't we? The one who is righteous will hate sin. They struggle against it. They love righteousness, but of course, they're not perfect. There is a wrestling, a struggle against sin. False prophets, false teachers, they do not love righteousness. No, rather they make 
excuses for their sin so that they can embrace their iniquity and their lawlessness and then deceive others with it. And there is judgment coming for people who choose to do those things, for people even who believe those things. We can be sure of it. That's what Peter is saying. God did not spare the angels. He destroyed the whole world of humanity besides eight people. He nuked a whole civilization. But the righteous, he knows how to rescue them. And that rescue begins, it hinges upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, friends. He sent his only begotten son, born in the flesh, so that he would live a truly righteous life, never once sinning. And when he lived that life, he went at the appropriate time, he went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. For our sake, he says, for our sake, not God's sake, but for our sake, he did that so that we can have peace with God, so that we can be reconciled unto God. So that therefore now would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God knows how to rescue the godly church, the righteous. And friends, the only way to be righteous is in Christ, to be found in him who is without sin. So let us look to Christ and praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful and so humbled by your merciful love toward us in Christ. None of us in this room, Lord, we confess that perhaps our sins may have not been as great as Lot, maybe even not as bad as Noah's. Lord, but we understand that you as a holy God, that your standard is perfection, a perfect, perpetual, and permanent righteous standard that we know we are all so far away from. And so we praise you and thank you that you have, through Christ, not reserved us for judgment, but that instead you have rescued us and declared us to be righteous based upon the merits of your lovely Son, our beloved Lord and Savior. And we pray, Lord God, that you would grow us in light of this truth, that you would help us to be like Lot was, Lord, unsettled by the sin around him. Forgive us, Father, Son, and Spirit, for our complacency often. Help us to be bold and more zealous. Help us to speak out concerning the wickedness that is around us. For we know, Lord, that your judgment is sure, that condemnation is not idle, and your judgment is not asleep. Lord God, may we then be heralds of righteousness like Noah, telling others of the reconciliation that can be found in Christ. Oh, we are so glad and grateful for that reconciliation, Lord. Let us not forget it and let us be satisfied in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) All right, friends. Well, we do have one more song to sing together. One more song. That text ended on a kind of a weird break. If you look in your Bible, chapter or verse 10 kind of finishes, or no, it doesn't finish, but then a new paragraph starts with the second half of verse 10, where it talks about them blaspheming these glorious ones. So we'll address that the next time that we're in 2 Peter. But just a reminder again, next week we're going to be here once more for uh, worship service. It'll be 1 o'clock. 
And um, more announcements will come, but let's, after that, we'll have an announcement and then a, um, a benediction. But for now, let's sing one more song together. Thank you.